Good evening, everyone. Feliz Martes. Uh, that means Happy Tuesday. So glad you could join us tonight on this weekly edition of our Neolife product conference call. My name is Cesar Galarza, Director of Sales for Neolife North America, reporting to you here from your very own Neolife office in sunny Los Angeles. And uh, I'll tell you what, whether it's LA, Fremont, California, or anywhere around the world, it is always a great day here at Neolife. All right, well, tonight we will discuss metabolic health. And to help us share more, we have a very special guest. He is the director of the Scientific Advisory Board, Mr. John Miller, who happens to be one of my favorite speakers. You will hear from John in just a few more minutes. Also, you'll hear an incredible testimony from Arlene Morris. She has a whole lot to share with you today on her incredible story Regarding her husband, I think you guys will really enjoy it. With that said, let's now hear an awesome testimony from Arlene Morris. And from there, we will turn the call over to our product manager, Cheryl Siskroyd. Enjoy the call, everyone. Hi, my name is Arlene Morris, and I'm a Sapphire Director with Neolife. We've been with Neolife for a little over six years now. Uh, my job before Neolife was to work with homeschoolers. I've been working with homeschoolers as an administrator in homeschooling uh, help for about 30 years. Uh, I've been working out of that and into my Neolife business more. My story really that got us going with Neolife is that my husband's cholesterol was extremely high. His triglycerides especially were very high and his HDL, the good stuff, he could never get up to the right number um, what the doctors wanted. We had uh, changed a lot of things in our diet previously, but as we learned about Neolife, we changed a few more things in, in diet and just got a little more strict about a few things. But that wasn't, of course, cutting it in itself. So we, we started on Neolife and the products especially uh, the carotenoid complex, salmon oil, lipotropic, uh, trianin. Those are probably the main things that he used in a little bit larger quantities. And from the time he started, five months later, he had his next blood work done. And all his cholesterol numbers were right in line with what they wanted. It was just amazing because we'd been working on it for nearly 10 years to get those numbers lined up. So we are definitely... Neolifers for life. And hello everyone. This is Cheryl Disgrate, and we are in for a very special call. Today we have Director John Miller talking to you about a very large topic. We'll be looking at both metabolic health and metabolic syndrome. When I refer to metabolic health, what I mean is it's the function of every cell in the body. We're going to be looking at your body holistically. Then, we'll be talking about a newer concept, metabolic syndrome. This has only entered our medical textbooks in 1998, but it's as widespread as the common cold at your child's daycare. According to the American Heart Association, 47 million Americans have it today. That is one in every six. Pretty crazy. So, without further ado, John, thank you so much for being with us today. Well, hi, Cheryl. Hi. <laughs> Always nice to be here with you. And uh, hi to everyone that's listening in. Uh, you know, metabolic health and metabolic syndrome are very interrelated, but one obviously because they're both about metabolic. But actually, metabolic syndrome is a component of metabolic health. Metabolic syndrome is a series of 
biomarkers in uh, in our body that sort of point us at diabetes. It's a calculation that's made off of uh, weight, body mass index, waist circumference, and the circumference of other parts of your body, your cholesterol levels, your triglyceride levels, and things like that. And when all of those get into a certain sort of situation, into certain levels, um, they add up to being uh, a number that qualifies you as having metabolic syndrome. But metabolic health is an, an entirely bigger picture than that. Metabolic health is literally about everything that goes on in the body. Think of it this way, okay? Metabolism is every reaction, biochemical or physical reaction that takes place in your body throughout your, uh, throughout your day. It starts at the cells and works their way up through the tissues those cells make into the organs those tissues make and into the systems that those organs make. And it's the function of all of those things that are looked at that determine your metabolic health, how all of those elements are working. So if you think about it, it all starts with the cell. How healthy your cells are, how metabolically well they are functioning, determines the metabolic health of the entire system from there. So I'll give you a couple of examples. Um, within this concept of metabolic health, which like I said is literally everything, we have a component called cardiometabolic health. And as you might guess, that relates to your heart. And cardiometabolic health is a whole series of biomarkers that can be picked up in your um, going and getting your normal blood tests and seeing the doctors and so on and so forth that can be measured. And those measures determine your sort of health status. So in a cardiometabolic sense, if we think about blood pressure, blood cholesterol levels, blood glucose levels, those sorts of things, plus cardiac function, if you go get an EEG or an EKG, rather, um, you'll find that all of those little pieces come together. When you get a certain spectrum of those, a certain series of numbers, you have something that is uh, sort of an adverse cardiometabolic health status. So when all of those things are good, though, then your cardiometabolic health is considered good. Now, the reason that you throw the word metabolic in there is because unto itself, you have cardiac health or cardi the health of the cardiovascular system, but the health of the heart actually influences the health of the whole rest of the organism, right? So you have to look at it metabolically or holistically. In this particular case, if your heart is not working well, if it's not pumping blood effectively, very simply, um, all of those cells that are in the extremities of your body and the deepest, darkest areas of your body that have to have nutrients delivered and oxygen provided and waste taken away, if your heart is not functioning well, those things can be compromised as well. So you can have a, a compromise in your cellular health that is driven by your cardiac health. So that's uh, just an example. There are others um, that we can talk about as we go through the, uh, the, the, the conversation here, but cardiometabolic health, uh, endocrine health, the function of your endocrine system, uh, pancreas and things that, that produce those uh, body regulating hormones and things like that, cellular health as it relates to the health of the organism but also to cancer risk, immunologic health which is a component of, of metabolic health, liver and kidney function health, and uh, neurological health, the brain and central nervous system. So that's major components, but all of those together add up to this idea of metabolic health. Those and many things more.
Well, thank you very much, John, for being here and for kind of talking to us about this interconnected system of metabolic health. Um, can we start just, how does this all correlate? Um, I know Neolife. Life, our main vision with the um, weight management program is having weight management, um, eating correctly, and exercise. Seems very similar to what we're talking about. Am I on the right track, perhaps? Yeah, absolutely on the right track. The reality is that when the evidence that's in the scientific community right now says the single most important aspect of uh, your your metabolic health, the single most important thing you can do is you can manage your weight. And I think we all sort of think about I should manage my weight because it's hard for my heart or maybe the overweight is hard on my joints. But what you have to realize is that when you're overweight, it's hard on the entire system. Everything that goes on in your body is somehow adversely affected or influenced by being overweight or particularly being obese. So there's the, the physical challenge of that, but the, the connection to metabolic health with overweight is whenever you are overweight, extra weight causes extra inflammatory stress in the body. Okay, So being overweight is strongly associated with inflammation. And so if you put it in the context of, of realizing that it's not just the weight that's wearing on you, but it's the, the weight that generates this excess body fat, that generates this inflammatory stress, um, that's key. So when you look at the evidence, they put those two things together. The foundation of um, metabolic health is maintaining your weight, which maintains helps maintain that inflammatory status as well. So it's really key. And what we talk about, of course, is we talk about uh, the association between weight, maintaining your weight is really important and living a physically active life. And the reason is because if your weight's under control, you're more likely to be physically active. And if you're physically active, you're more likely to have your weight under control. So those two things are, are sort of so strongly interrelated that they become the foundation of our sort of health pyramid, the neo-life lifestyle, if you will. Very important stuff. So touching on weight, um, I know you touched on the different um, the different systems that metabolic health plays in. Um, and if we could just talk a little bit more, go a little deeper into depth of them, I think this seems to be correlating pretty nicely. Um, you know, even with diabetes mm -hmm. and with cardiometabolic health, how does being overweight or obesity play into either one of those of those two? Well, I, there's, there's a couple of things here. You know. Um, Everybody knows, I think, that if you're overweight, it puts stress on your heart. You have a lot more body that you need to provide mm -hmm. nutrients and oxygen to and take away the waste. So the bigger the body mass, the bigger the heart. And a lot of small people who have big body mass didn't get a big heart to survive it. So they didn't increase the size of the pump, if you will. So the pump is straining to keep up with the mass that it has to. So it puts a physical strain on the heart to be overweight. But it also puts a... a biochemical strain on the heart to be overweight as well. Because when you're overweight, remember we talked about inflammation, overweight being a driver of inflammation, ramping up inflammation in the body. And inflammation is one of the biggest problems that your heart will encounter. Your heart is working very hard. Next to your brain, the hardest working, well, it's the hardest working muscle. <laughs> your brain's not a muscle. Uh, but it's next to your brain, it's the biggest consumer of energy in your heart in a 24-hour in a period, or in your body in a 24-hour period. So there's a lot of metabolic activity going on there. So you've got a lot of inflammation and oxidation associated with that activity. So when you're 
overweight and you've got that added inflammation, that inflammation that's naturally going on in the heart because of its function becomes stressed even more, becomes overloaded. So the, the two are very closely related. Also, when you're overweight, overweight tends to mess with your blood lipid profiles. Mm -hmm. People who are overweight tend to have higher cholesterol levels than they should, lower HDL cholesterol levels than they should, higher triglycerides than they should. They are more frequently likely to be prescribed one or more drugs to deal with that. People who are overweight have hypertension, high blood pressure. Again, often the, the answer would be for them to go get a drug rather than dealing with the underlying cause. We'll deal with the symptom. Uh, which is, I'm, I don't want to be judgmental to that, but really you should deal with the cause. If you can deal with the cause, deal with the cause. So all of these factors add up when you're overweight. And, you know, it works. To me, it's pretty obvious how it impacts the heart, but what's surprising is how it impacts all the rest of the systems of the body. Yes, very important. It seems that way. So we talked about inflammation, and we talked about being overweight. Now, when someone's overweight, um, not necessarily they mean that they are metabolically unhealthy. I know we, we talked briefly about this, but sometimes people that are skinny may still be metabolically unhealthy. Sure. Um, can you talk a little bit about what goes on in the body? How, how is this possible? Uh, well, you know, again, um, overweight is something that is not necessarily active in the metabolism other than inflammation. O overweight is a status you get to. It's a symptom. Being overweight is a symptom of overconsumption or under under utilization of the nutrients you're consuming. And it puts a lot of stress on your body. But there's a lot of people who don't have issues with their body weight. It can still be metabolically unhealthy. Uh, a lot of skinny people have blood cholesterol issues still. A lot of skinny people have um, diabetes or type 2 diabetes where they're no longer managing their glucose levels effectively. A lot of skinny people have issues with their kidneys or issues with their liver or whatever it might be. When I say skinny, I don't mean bone skinny. I mean just that they look to be thin. Uh, sort of like the models that you see in these magazines, you know, they can be looking fabulous in their new gown, but they can be metabolically unhealthy. And the reason is in the background of all of that, there's other things going on. They're not getting the um, the sort of nutrients they need. They're not getting the the anti-inflammatory compounds they need. Their blood chemistry is sort of messed up. And as a result, they can look great but really be metabolically unhealthy. Matter of fact, there's studies that show that you can be a little overweight but be metabolically healthy, meaning that you're taking, you're getting some exercise, you're managing the weight, you're not continuing to become obese, that you're eating lots of fruits and vegetables and whole grains and getting a lot of omega-3s and carotenoids and things like that that are the primary defenders of your body's tissues that are going on. And you can actually be healthier, healthier, metabolically healthier than a non-obese person, a skinny person. When you run all the numbers, um, though being overweight, certainly overweight obesity becomes a bigger challenge, but being overweight is not necessarily an indicator of, of um, being metabolically unhealthy, but it is a, an indicator of the long-term probability of it becoming a bigger, bigger challenge for you later in life. It's one thing to be a little overweight when you're 30-something and still out doing a little stuff, but by the time, you know, the rule is you put on about 10 pounds a decade. <laughs> so by the time you're 50 or 60, you've got 20 or 30 pounds more on there, and now it's a real problem for you. So 
even though you may, you know, it's always good to take care of your weight. Even if you're metabolically healthy, it's still good to try to get that weight down, get the BMI down around 25, and, and uh, be aware of that. Of course. Now, you spoke about endocrine health and how with obesity sometimes comes diabetes um, type 2. Um, can you discuss why is there seems to be quite a correlation between sometimes overweight and type 2 diabetes? I yeah. know with looking at glucose balance, we saw such a surplus of, of sugars. Yeah. Is this well, th there there is a very direct correlation between type 2 diabetes and um, weight. I mean, people who are overweight are at much greater risk of, of developing type 2 diabetes, especially as they age. So, um, depending upon the research you look at, you can be three to four times more likely to develop diabetes just based upon your body mass. Mm -hmm. Okay, so that's, it's uh, a very direct association. But, you know, there are different forms of type 2 diabetes. And uh, there's the form of type 2 diabetes where you don't produce enough insulin, which comes back to this idea of endocrine metabolic health, right? The health of your metabolic health of your endocrine system, of which your pancreas is one of the components and of which the production of insulin, the primary responsibility of the pancreas, is a, a, a component. So if you have poor endocrine metabolic health and you have compromised pancreatic activity, you can develop type 2 diabetes simply by not being able to produce enough insulin uh, because this whole system is compromised leading up to the production of that. That's the sort of type 2 diabetic that you see that is insulin-dependent type 2 diabetes, where they're having to inject insulin. Uh, so that's one form of type 2 diabetes. Another form of type 2 diabetes is when your pancreas is working fine and you're producing all of the, the sort of insulin that you need, but your cells stop responding to that insulin. You know, the way the body clears glucose out of the bloodstream is to secrete insulin and have that glucose taken up into the cells for the cells to either utilize as energy or to, vert, to convert to a form for storage, right? Convert a little, make it into a little fat. So hopefully it's using it for energy, but sometimes it's going to make a little fat. So, But if the cells stop responding to that insulin, you develop insulin-resistant type 2 diabetes, then um, that can become a problem. So those, that's two ways, and both of those the one of them relates to the endocrine pancreatic health. The other relates to the cellular pancre or cellular metabolic health because the cells stop responding. When we developed um, glucose balance, we looked across that entire spectrum. Right? We said, well, our goal here is not to develop a drug that's going to do this job for the body or for the person, but to give the body some nutrients that we know that promote these actions happening naturally. So part of the component of, of glucose balance is to help support natural pancreatic production of, in, of insulin, right? Because for a portion of the population, especially pre-diabetics, that can be an issue. Another part of it on the, is to promote cell sensitivity to insulin in the body, to help the body's cells um, be receptive to insulin so if, when the insulin is present, the glucose gets moved out. Really, really important. But there's a couple of other things that are, are involved in there. One of the things that we know about is called postprandial glucose response. And basically, postprandial glucose, postprandial means after you've eaten something, very technical scientific term for having a sandwich. 
excuse me, but um, in postprandial blood glucose, we know that sometimes those glucose levels happen really quickly from our investigations in the glycemic response control. We know why these things react. So for some people, as they become pre-diabetic, managing the rate at which glucose enters the bloodstream, you know, and how much and how quickly uh, becomes a challenge. You can certainly deal with that challenge with a glycemic response control shake because it's already glycemically response controlled, but people do eat other things. Mm -hmm. And when you're eating those other things, um, it's, uh, our idea was to give them a little help, a little, in, a little sort of metabolic support to deal with that postprandial blood glucose. And in fact, a great deal of the evidence that's behind the uh, ingredients used in this, this product, the, the curcuminoids and the, and the uh, components from cinnamon are, show benefit for postprandial blood glucose. And then, you know, out of all of that becomes the fasting blood glucose numbers. Fasting blood glucose really is just a reflection of how quickly your blood glucose levels re revert to their baseline. Usually that's no more than 100. Uh, and as long as you're after a period of time fasting, which is generally about eight hours, as long as they fall below that 100 level, then uh, that's good. That process, though, is, is entirely dependent upon metabolism and a few things that are involved there. And for some people, Getting it below 100 becomes a problem. For pre-diabetics, usually that's one of the indicators of pre-diabetes, is it doesn't go below 100. It's 105 or 110 or 120 or 130 or 40. Generally, when it gets up to 140, your doctor's trying to give you glucophage or one of these um, glucose-lowering drugs. But below that, it can be managed often just by helping rebalance things. So glucose balance helps to rebalance that aspect of glucose metabolism as well. Very important. So I see a trend going on between obesity, inflammation, and I can't help but put us on the next topic, which I found very enlightening, and that was cancer and how obesity and cancer kind of play um, a close role. And so I wanted to see if you could tell me more and the listeners uh, about some of the studies that you um, Sure. Uh, you know, if you think about it, it's not a surprise that obesity plays a role in cancer. Overweight and obesity plays a role in cancer. Um, because we know that overweight and obesity drive inflammation, and inflammation is the one of the two evil twins of aging and disease, oxidation and inflammation. And inflammation is, if not an instigator of cancer, a promoter of cancer. You can have a carcinogenic event, which is called the initiation or instigation, but then there's the promotional cycle that causes that cancer to start to grow. And inflammation is known to be a promoter. But we now know that ins inflammation uh, related to obesity is um, also a cause, or there's a, a more direct causal effect. Uh, I've been reading a couple of studies recently, one from the American Association of Cancer Research that, that looked into obesity, metabolic health, and how it can influence cancer risk. And I'll just excerpt a couple of things from this first study here. It was published in the Journal of, of Clinical Oncology in 2014. It says, individuals who are overweight or, or obese are at increased risk of several types of cancer, colorectal cancer, endometrial cancer, gallbladder cancer, kidney cancer, pancreatic cancer, and postmenopausal breast cancer, as well as adenocarcinoma types of esophageal cancer. So we know that now. That's not, they didn't say we think or might be, that we know that that's the case, that there's overweight and obesity play roles in there. Um, the, so much so that 
it's to give it a sort of marker, I think the researchers uh, did us a favor when they contexted it this way. This is a direct quote from the uh, lead researcher in this study who says, quote, Obesity is a major under-recognized contributor to the nation's cancer toll and is quickly overtaking tobacco as the leading cause of preventable cancers. Now, think about that. You know, we know beyond any question that you know, tobacco causes cancer. If you don't believe that, then okay. But uh, believe me, it, there's a direct correlation between um, tobacco and cancer, and not just lung cancer. When you smoke, you're at higher risk of all sorts of different kinds of cancer. A part of the reason why that's true is because smoking causes inflammation in the lungs and the surrounding tissue, okay, and tissues throughout the body. Well, when we think of obesity now, we know that obesity, overweight and obesity, cause inflammation. So the key link here, the same mechanism that's involved in can cancer risk increase from tobacco, which would be inflammatory, is now associated with being overweight or obese as well. And in that context, it sort of makes sense. So it's, I think it's important that people give some consideration of that. Another study, uh, there were two studies published here recently uh, 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 in the American Association of Cancer Research and also the Cancer Research, Cancer Epidemiology, Biomarkers and Prevention. And uh, one study I thought was particularly succinct when they concluded that poor metabolic health increases the risk of postmenopausal breast cancer irrespective of body mass in women. So for women out there, okay, um, when, you're, when you're overweight, it's one thing, but when you have poor metabolic health, whether you're overweight or not, you're, you have an in you're at an increased risk of breast cancer, especially postmenopausal females. So it's another one of these relationships that says, what do I manage? Well, managing your weight's important, but you, that's not really the whole deal. That's just part of the puzzle. You need to manage your weight. You need to think about your diet. You need to work on um, the inflammatory components, eliminating the inflammatory and maximizing the anti-inflammatory. And then there was one last thing here from the Cancer Epidemiology, Biomarkers and Prevention. It says, researchers found that metabolic syndrome, which is we talked about earlier, which is just a component of, of in, in the metabolic health equation, increases endometrial cancer risk independent, again, of whether or not you are overweight or obese. So if you have metabolic syndrome, which overweight and obesity is a component of that, even if you don't, and all those other markers are off, cholesterol, triglycerides, blood pressure, glucose, and so on and so forth, you were at increased risk of endometrial cancer. So this combination of things all comes back to the common driver of um, being overweight, promotes inflammation, and inflammation promotes cancers. Wow. So I see how everything is very interconnected. And so I guess, like anything else, I kind of want to see if we can next say, how can, this, how can I avoid this? What can we do to avoid these common ailments? Well, I think that you know the key, the key is really follow the NeoLife lifestyle, because our whole lifestyle program is based on the concept of what to avoid and what to embrace to maximize your probability of health and minimize your risk of disease while living a long, functional life. So, um, you know, our approach again of looking first at the foundation of health, which is manage your weight and get some exercise, because of the relationship between those two, you can't. If you're managing your weight, you're more likely to exercise, and if you're exercising, you're more likely to be managing your weight. So that's really, func really functionally important for this. 
But the other thing to know is to look at the rest of your diet and lifestyle. Diet is a modulator of metabolic health, meaning that when your diet is effective, your metabolic health is maximized. And, but when your diet is poor, your metabolic health is compromised. It's throughout the system. It starts right at the cells, as I said, goes from cells to tissues to organs to systems of the body. So the thing that you want to do is you want to minimize. Let's talk about inflammation, okay, for example. You want to minimize the intake of inflammatory factors in your, in your diet. The inflammatory factors are all of these industrialized food products, right? Things that are high in fat and trans fat, high in cholesterol, um, got a lot of uh, sort of chemistry to them that is unusual to the human body. A lot of uh, an overload of omega-6 fats that come from industrial foods. And two things happen there. Generally, when you're consuming a lot of those, you're not consuming a lot of the good stuff on the other side. The anti-inflammatory fats like omega-3s and the anti-inflammatory compounds like polyphenols that you'd find in fruits and vegetables and, and the like. So you need to cut down on the uh, intake of the things that you know are bad for you. They don't sell anything anti-inflammatory at a fast food restaurant, if you were wondering. Matter of fact, there are very few things in most restaurants that would be considered truly anti-inflammatory. Um, most of the things that you would consume would tend to be on the inflammatory side of the dietary spectrum, except maybe the broccoli and the fruits and vegetables that you might consume there. But the, the potatoes and the rice and the... Not so much. That sort of stuff. Yeah. So minimize the presence of that. doesn't mean you have to stop doing that completely. Just minimize that and then maximize the presence of anti-inflammatory things. Lots of fruits and vegetables have a lot of polyphenols and carotenoids that tend to be both not only antioxidant but anti-inflammatory. And of course, omega-3s yeah. are really, really important. They are the primary fat-soluble anti-inflammatory compounds. Yes. Now, speaking of which, um, I know the study with um, salmon oil talked about the inflammatory index, um, and this had to be a number of years ago. So has was Neolife SAB one of the pioneers of looking at inflammatory index? If you can maybe go over that study. Sure. Uh, yet to answer your question, were we pioneers? Yeah. Matter of fact, when we did that study uh, on omega-3 salmon oil plus, uh, that type of study, an intervention trial, meaning it's a trial done in the real world with real people under real life conditions, which are very, very strong, much better for this sort of thing than doing drug trials where you've got too many laboratory controlled things and because the world life is not laboratory controlled. So um, we looked at the this idea of inflammatory index and we took it right down to the basics. Remember I told you in the beginning that metabolic health starts with the cells. So we started with cells and in particular cell membranes. And what we found is that um, through this study in your cell membranes are made of lipids and those lipids can be either inflammatory and anti or anti-inflammatory. In the study we found that in as little as six or four to eight weeks um, of just taking salmon oil plus every day, the actual inflammatory index the ratio of inflammatory compounds in those red blood cells was changed rather dramatically. We saw at baseline that they had um, a certain ratio where the omega-3s were quite low and the omega-6 inflammatory were quite high. And then after, um, like I say, four to eight weeks, we showed that omega-3s, in particular EPA, DPA, and DHA that are uh, in salmon oil plus, actually dislodged those inflammatory fats, kicked them out of the cell membranes, and replaced replace them with anti-inflammatory fats. So by changing the ratio by a 
kicking out the inflammatory facts and fats in that cell membrane and putting in the anti-inflammatory ones, we changed that ratio and thus started the change of the inflammatory index. And as far as I know, we were the first company to do that sort of study and with that sort of look for a dietary supplement. I don't know of many or any actually that have been done on dietary supplements uh, like that since, but it's one of the hallmarks of, of Neolife and the Scientific Advisory Board is to do that sort of work that applies generally before it becomes known. I mean, we were talking glycemic response control 20 years ago almost, and now it's become sort of common, and the same thing's happening with the inflammatory index. We were talking about it in the early 2000s, and now uh, 15 years later, everybody's starting to talk about it. So um, it's one of the benefits we have of staying focused on the science and not having to do all of the other stuff that goes on. We just keep moving the ship forward on that path. Really important study. Yes. Those are actually three different biomarkers that you discussed, which is your first one, um, which is the infl inflammatory index, mm -hmm. the second one, the glucose index, and then the third one, which you've mentioned before, which maybe we could touch a little bit more on, and that's oxidative stress. Yeah. You know, you told us multiple times, anti-aging, oxidation, inflammation. Right. Oxidation and inflammation are the evil twins of aging and disease. And it's true, every disease or condition, adverse disease or adverse condition that occurs in the body is somehow got an oxidation and or inflammation component attached to it. It's just the way the system works. It doesn't matter where you go in the body. It can be the heart or the liver or the brain or wherever those relationships exist. So it's important for people to understand that, you know, when we tell them to get fruits and vegetables in their diet, it's not that we you know, when they're missing the fruits and vegetables, it's not that they miss the juice or the nice flavor or so on and so forth. It's that they're missing key nutrients that are only available for those from those sorts of foods that actually manage the relationship between oxidation and oxidative stress in your body. When you're under oxidative stress, oxidative stress attacks cell membranes. It attacks the lipids that are in your bloodstream. It messes with your immune capacity. All sorts of things happen. It increases heart disease risk and so on and so forth. Matter of fact, um, oxidative events on cell membranes, as we were just talking about changing the, the, the content of cell membranes from an inflammatory fat to an anti-inflammatory fat, the inflammatory index, same thing applies with oxidation. You can change that inflammatory index, but if you don't have the antioxidants to balance it, that cell membrane is still at risk of being oxidized in the presence of these oxidizing agents. So. Um, it's not that you shouldn't do it, it's just it's like, you know, having one shoe. <laughs> the other foot's going to get real sore because you need to have both shoes to deal with both things. Uh, so um, dealing with oxidative stress is, is the next key component. Those carotenoids and flavonoids and polyphenols and things like that that are the antioxidants that you need to get from your food that you're not can leave you needlessly exposed if you're not getting enough of them. And there's no other place to get them. I mean, that's the only place you can get these bioactive nutrients is from foods that we're talking about. And that's, not surprisingly, exactly where Neolife goes to get them. We don't make them in the laboratory or, you know, get them from some pond scum someplace. We actually go to the actual foods that we know contain these and extract those bioactive substances and deliver them because nothing else will do the job. Very important stuff. So we talked also about uh, weight. And I know Neolife Shake 
seems to fit in pretty well into this. Um, and also doesn't just look at minimizing your weight, but also your body mass index. Mm -hmm. Can you um, expand a little bit more on that, on how, why that's important? Sure. Uh, you know, it's, it's, I guess if you don't think about it, it's one of those situations where it doesn't really dawn on you until you think about it. And um, when I talk to people, I'd like to just draw this to their attention. When we lose weight, you know, we know that weight is about inflammation, and inflammation is is a big problem. And as you lose weight, you actually dial down your inflammation. Uh, you know, a five-pound loss in weight can represent a, a much bigger loss in inflammatory stress in the body. Okay, so really important. But the other thing about it uh, that makes um, the clinical trial for the for the NeoLife weight management system so effective is we looked at beyond just weight loss and there's a, a component in there that we call anthropometric measures. It's a way of, it's a big word, another big scientific word, that says the measures of key regions of your body. So it would be your upper arms or your thighs, your waist, your hips, your calves, um, things like folds under the arms and so on and so forth, that all of these anthropometric measures. So you can lose weight and not lose fat. Okay, you can just lose muscle, uh, and which it wouldn't be valuable or nearly as valuable. Well, no, it wouldn't be valuable; it'd be de detrimental um, because the fat is the driving force for inflammation. So when we did our study, not only did we show we lost weight, but we showed a continuous loss of measure, a reduction of anthropometric measure throughout all of the regions of the body. So people who are on the trial had smaller thighs, smaller calves, smaller waist, smaller hips, smaller arms. And what that told us is that we were actually losing that fat, which was important to us because it became a primary driver of our understanding of the relationship between fat and inflammation. And by reducing the fat, we are reducing the inflammation. So not only do you lose the weight, which causes a reduction of inflammation, but it's a direct confirmation that you lose the fat it is the driver of inflammation. Really important part of the study. Very you don't want important. to just lose weight, you want to lose fat. Yes. So now all of this, we touched on the fact that it, it's going to impact your heart and you're going to look at a lot of your blood pressure, blood lipids, um, and these are very important biomarkers. Mm -hmm. uh, looking at metabolic syndrome, you know, if you have metabolic syndrome, it actually increases your risk of, say, a heart attack or a mm -hmm. stroke. Um, why is this? If you could talk a little bit about why are these markers so important for heart? Well, actually, biomarkers are important for everything. Um, you know, the, the biomarkers for heart health are pretty obvious. If you go to uh, your doctor regularly or, or whatever, they're going to get a little uh, blood sample from time to time, and they want to look at the relationship between... Often they'll talk to you most about your blood cholesterol, which seems to be the big the big concern. And there's there's reason for concern. Certainly, blood cholesterol is a big a, a big concern, in the sense that cholesterol is a pretty strongly associated marker for cardiovascular health. When when blood cholesterol levels are low, say below 180, uh, then the risk of cardiovascular health or heart disease is much lower. When blood cholesterol levels get higher, say above 200, and going on up from there, the risk of 
of heart disease gets uh, gets significantly higher. So often they'll focus right in on those biomarkers. There's really six biomarkers in the blood that you need to think about relative to heart. One of those is your total cholesterol. Another is your LDL cholesterol. Another is your HDL cholesterol. LDL is the bad cholesterol. HDL is the good. Then there's the ratio of HDL to LDL, that ratio of the good cholesterol to bad cholesterol. You want as much of that HDL as you can and keep that ratio with LDL down. And then the ratio of HDL to total cholesterol. So those are the five cholesterol-rated ones. And then the sixth one in terms of cardiovascular lipids is triglycerides. So that combination of biomarkers is important. Whenever those biomarkers are elevated, um, you're at risk of heart disease. Now, interestingly enough, you cannot be overweight and still have problems with your with your cardiovascular risk factors with those six. You can be, you know, have a BMI of 25 or 22 or 20 or something like that and still have elevated cholesterol and triglycerides and, and the like because it's often a reflection of diet. Uh, and you can have some familial... Uh, uh, drivers that way, some genetic predispositions to elevated cholesterol. So um, in, in that particular case, it's really important to understand that the protective factors against that are you want to pump up your HDL, go out and get some exercise. You want to pump up your HDL, go out and take some, eat lots of carotenoid rich fruits and vegetables, eat lots of fiber, things like that. If you want to take down your total cholesterol levels, eat lots of fiber. If you want to take down your triglyceride levels, Salmon Oil Plus showed in the clinical trial that it was amazingly powerful in coming to lowering triglycerides and all of those sorts of things. But there's another element of this that is a secondary marker of that that people don't often look at, and that's your homocysteine level. Homocysteine is a now considered a known to be a more significant indicator of risk of heart disease than cholesterol and triglycerides. And the reason is that homocysteine um, is an inflammatory force. Now, the challenge is that homocysteine is a natural thing that goes on in your body. Naturally, your body brings in certain nutrients and processes them through what's called the homocysteine cycle and produces methionine or something else out of that cycle. And so homocysteine values, the only amount that you have is like the pool that is active at that particular moment. You got some new stuff coming in and some finished stuff going out, so the pool of homocysteine becomes sort of um, stable. Generally, that will be measured in single-digit numbers on the homocysteine scale. If you go to the doctor, these days they should be giving you that data with your blood, with your blood data. Um, what happens is when the homocysteine cycle breaks down, uh, it doesn't finish the cycle, so instead of being a static pool, that level builds up and up and up so that homocysteine becomes unusually high presence of it in the body. The problem with that is that it's a very strong oxidizing agent. And um, like I said, there's a much stronger connection between elevated homocysteine level than there is cholesterol levels when it comes to cardiovascular health. And the aspect of that is oxidation. So a couple of things you need to do there is one, if you don't know your homocysteine levels, you should know your homocysteine levels. Um, generally, you know, for the, for these blood tests, it's a little bit like the idiot light on the dashboard that comes on and says you're out of oil. Yeah, it's a little late. So, <laughs> you know, you should be tracking those sorts of things because you don't want to go and find that instead of two or three or five, which would be the normal homocysteine level, that you're at 15 or 20 or 25 because that oxidative stress becomes a big factor. There are ways to address homocysteine 
uh, completion of the cycle, lipotropic adjunct is designed to feed in nutrients specifically related in the utilization of, of the, those nutrients for the purpose of keeping that homocysteine cycle working so that it doesn't become plugged up, it actually becomes stays in balance down in those single digit values. So really important cardiovascular risk factors there. Um, the reason that uh, yeah, I don't know about everybody else, but I actually track my risk factors, my cardiometabolic ones, as well as uh, many, many others. You know, I enter it into my smartphone uh, in the iHealth app from Apple. You know, there's lots of ways you can do. They can tells me how many steps I do every day, tells me what my how many flights of stairs I climbed, keeps me both physically active, tracks my weight, immediately calculates my BMI for me. So if I weigh myself, and I don't even have to enter it now because I've got a scale that Bluetooth to my phone. Pretty cool stuff. So I step on there and it does all the calculations. But that, if you really want to take charge of your long-term health care, long-term future rather, in terms of metabolic health or whatever it might be, uh, you just need to get involved. And that's why biomarkers become so important to know and follow. Yes, so very important, which that brings us to summarizing and exactly what this call is really all about, and that's understanding what is metabolic health and metabolic syndrome. Um, then again, looking at how it impacts each one of our systems and how it interconnects with everything, whether it be immune or neurological, um, heart health. And then again, how to take ownership and how to take control, whether it be with diet or one of the biomarkers. Um, it's very important to do multiple things, whether it be weight management, having an active lifestyle, reducing your stress, maybe sleeping a little bit, um, or eating a diet nutrition. Um, what do you think is the most important? Well, the evidence by far says that weight management is the single biggest thing that you can do, and that combination with exercise is fundamental. Um, stress reduction, yeah, it's always good to avoid stress. Sometimes it's unavoidable, so you have to find ways to manage that. And another thing that exercise helps you do is manage stress. So that that's uh, another good thing. Sleep, you know, sleep deprivation and stress are very closely associated. I don't know how to tell you to get better sleep other than, you know, don't go to bed on a full stomach and you know, turn off your iPad or your iPhone or your television and actually make going to bed about going to bed <laughs> and getting, <laughs> Very some, important stuff. getting some sleep. But the real key here is, is diet. Everything we know about metabolic health says that it's modulated by diet and nutrition. Matter of fact, there's a number of articles that I've brought here in my package of information that relate the importance of using diet to manage health or, or manage metabolic health or how the two are influenced. And they say so not a lot different than what we talk about. They sort of amplify the importance of the messages we've been delivering in the past, like pay attention to the antioxidant value of your diet because oxidative stress is a real thing. It doesn't really matter where it is in your heart, your brain, everywhere. Oxidative stress is a real thing, uh, especially in the types of lifestyles we live and so on and so forth these days. It's even it's even higher. So, and the antioxidant compounds are well known to people who pay any attention to us at all. You know, carotenoids are really powerful lipid soluble antioxidants, protect cell membranes from oxidative attack. One of the things the USDA proved in their clinical trials they did for us. Vitamin C and vitamin E are 
very well-known vitamin antioxidants, polyphenols and flavonoids. Very important, you know, some of those are important because not only do they work in the major tissues of your body, they get a free pass across the blood-brain barrier and get up and protect you from the oxidative stress that's going on in your brain as well. And then we talked about inflammation and anti-inflammatory things. Try to avoid those inflammatory things. If you stop and think about it, you know what they are, right? It's the fast foods, convenience foods, and things that you're eating. Everybody sort of has a pretty good idea when they're eating something they shouldn't be. Okay, and remember what I said, there's nothing really anti-inflammatory going on in a fast food restaurant. That's not their, their claim. They're figuring, come in and eat what you want to eat here, and then the rest is on you to take care of the rest of it. So, and so you want to look at omega-3 fats on the lipid cellular side. There are no better, no stronger anti-inflammatory compounds than, um, in the diet anywhere than omega-3 fats, and particularly the way we deliver them in omega-3 salmon oil plus with all eight of the family members in synergy. The real important relationship. Flavonoids and polyphenols, not only antioxidants, but anti-inflammatory compounds. Another thing is think about detoxifiers. You know, we talk about detox here from time to time, but toxins go on in your body all the time, and making sure you're getting an abundant amount of B vitamins is critical to the detoxification process. We know B vitamins are involved in energy, which is critical, but energy is also involved in detox. Detox doesn't happen for a zero-sum game. It's a process the body goes through and uses energy to do. So when you compromise your B vitamin energy intake, you also compromise your B vitamin uh, anti-detoxification uh, intake. Um, remember about regenerative stuff. You know, as your body goes through weight loss and so on, you're going to have to rebuild to some degree. So there are regenerative compounds, regenerative nutrients you need to get a lot of structural components like proteins and amino acids that build muscle and connective tissue and things like that. Remember every morning when you wake up, if you weren't eating while you were sleeping, you're in nitrogen debt, meaning you need more amino acids. So the best thing you can do to kick off your day is, is start with those uh, with a good protein source. Structural lipids, functional for uh, cells. And cellular structure and function, remember that the basis of you is those cells and how they perform. That is what metabolic health is all about, right? Starts with the cells, goes to the tissues those cells make, to the organs the tissues make, to the systems that those organs drive, that becomes the total you. And it all starts right down at the cellular membrane. So remember to take care of yourselves. And you know, you know Neolife, we're all about cellular nutrition. Everything we do has been grounded in making yourselves healthy so you can be too. Yeah. Well, thank you so very much, John. It's always a pleasure being with you and hearing such a a mass amount of great information. It's uh, always a pleasure. Sure. Yes. Thank you. Wow. What an amazing and insightful call. We want to thank John Miller and Arlene for such great information. And also, thank you to everyone for joining us today on this jam-packed call. In closing, these statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. These products are not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. With that said, we want to thank everyone for joining us tonight on the call again and choosing Neolife as your nutrition provider. We wish you all good night and goodbye from Neolife. Bye, guys.